Hi everyone, this is episode one of season five and we have Roy McLaughlin with us and Pete Hamilton. Hi both. Hi. Hi. Today we're starting off the year with a broad view of what is going on in the insurance market right now in access to insurance and how Peter is planning on bringing everything together. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So how are you both doing? Very good here. Thanks, Catherine. And hi, Roy. Uh, so I'm in South London. The, the sky is blue. The birds are singing. It's all good here. <laughs> uh, I, can't, I can't hear any birds, but I'm sure there are some uh, to, to, to the west of London. But yes, good to see you both. And Happy New Year. Yeah, if it's not too late, Happy New Year to you all. Happy New Year to you too. I was going to say, I don't have birds, but I have a fudge. And every now and then he will come along and have a little bark at us, maybe. So I'll, I'll maybe uh, ask Lindsay to edit me out every now and then. But uh, no, it's, it's obviously really good to have you here, Peter, and for us to be going through things. And just to sort of like start off with a little bit of a caveat to the listeners. Um, I I do have COVID at the moment. Uh, my voice every now and then is going a little bit croaky. Um, I am feeling much better than I did, which is obviously a really positive thing. But I will be leaving Polly, Peter and Roy to have a a good moment together to have a good natter and I'll just pop in every now and then if I need something that I think oh I'll just I'll just pop in with that but to start off probably I think I'll be really good Peter is I know that you've always been involved in lots of things in our industry and now even more so you are here there and everywhere and um, you know you were really involved in some key roles um, within the insurance world and beyond that as well so can you just kind of start off by letting everyone, Scott, sorry, what, what are you up to right now? Thanks, Rathen. Firstly, uh, get well soon. So sorry to hear about the COVID. Um, uh, maybe, you know, recovery by the end of the show, let's let's hope. Um, so my role, I work for Zurich. I have um, been in the industry for some 40 years um, and uh, enjoying it as much as ever. So right now, in terms of roles, I have a few um, different areas that I'm kind of focusing on. So historically, I'd have been uh, quite heavily involved in some of the commercial aspects, the marketing, the the sales, the, the kind of business aspects of Zurich. My role right now is to look at the way we interact with broader industry issues. And so that means uh, specifically, for example, um, I work quite closely with the ABI. I chair a couple of ABI committees that we might come on to um, in terms of retail protection and long-term care. But also, uh, I'm spending a lot of time at the moment looking at, uh, and I know this is uh, an area of interest to yourselves, access to insurance, particularly for those with disabilities. And one of the uh, roles I picked up last year, following on from Johnny Timpson, was the um, role of insurance ambassador for um, access and disability, which I guess some people will know uh, a fair bit about, but equally there may be quite a few listeners uh, who've no idea uh, what that involves. So it might help perhaps if I just give you a, a quick flavour as, as to what it is. And I'm kind of going to read just briefly from the Cabinet Office's own website. So um, this post is one of 17 in different industries that reports through to uh, the disability unit within the Cabinet Office. Uh, and they say there, disability and access ambassadors are senior business leaders. Uh, they drive improvements in the accessibility and quality of services and facilities in their sector for uh, disabled people, helping to ensure businesses are doing all they can to support disabled customers. Uh, the roles are voluntary and serve for up to three years. So, so that gives a sense as to what, what, what it's a, a, about at a very high level. Um, if you look more broadly, there are ambassadors for airports, arts and culture, banking, buses, countryside and heritage, creative industries, uh, energy, hospitality, and more. So it's 17 in total. And the idea is that these ambassadors meet periodically, share best practice. And I guess I would see my role 
within the insurance uh, industry as trying to bring together um, sometimes disparate parts um, to, to understand what the issues are, particularly in terms of access um, for those with disabilities. Uh, and that will include people like insurers, obviously, um, and I'll represent those in part, but also reassurers, advisors, uh, and consumer groups. So, so far as uh, we can do anything at all, it, it's to collaborate and bring together those different perspectives and look to optimize the outcomes at different stages of, of insurance journeys. I mean, it's, it's meant- so important, isn't it? I think so. I was just going to say, you know, it's that, you know, I mean, obviously, just a tad, just a, just a little bit that you're doing there, Pete. You know, it's just a little bit here, there and everywhere, aren't you? But it's, it's that that's the view of the industry as you say just getting everybody together the insurers the reinsurers the advisors it's it's not a small task it's you know it's a huge amount of networking lots and lots of information everyone i'm sorry Roy, because i know i just I kind of interrupted you there a little bit you go you go ahead Roy. no i, I, was, I was gonna say uh, peter i mean it's uh that is a, a fascinating position to have because i think this comes down to a subject that we talked about uh, uh, over o- over many a year which is the perception of our industry and how open it is to, you know, utopia is we can insure any 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 person out there, uh, no matter what their, their, their you know their background or situation is. Do, do, do you think there's still a reputational problem with the general public stroke the industry itself, maybe? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think we can touch on that from a couple of perspectives. If, if I look expressly and specifically at the um, disability and access point of view to, be, to begin with, um, uh, it might be worth highlighting a few areas where I, th- I think there is work to be done here. So in terms of what structure I'm looking to put around the work um, uh, here, I've got five ma- main areas, I think all which will play ultimately to your kind of trust and reputational piece. So uh, I'll, I'll list them first and then we can perhaps dive into a few of them depending on, on uh, levels of uh, specific interest in them. So, so the first I think is uh, underwriting and data, the way we use it, how transparent we are. The second is insurance as a place to work. How can we make um, insurance as a career more accessible and more attractive for those with disabilities? Um, I think there's work to be done on things like assistive technology. So there's huge amounts of increasing um, technological uh, capability that can be brought to bear to help those with disabilities, most obviously online, but, but elsewhere as well. So. I think there's a lot of good stuff out there that is probably unknown to many. So how can we share what's available um, amongst the the insurance and the the advisory uh, community? I would want to build on the really good signposting work. Um, and I know uh, having listened to all of your podcasts historically, you know, signposting will always be uh, you know an important flavor. And I think you know, hats off to to the two of you, to Johnny and to others who have made this almost just part of the insurance lexicon at the moment. So, uh, you know, there won't be many conferences where it's not mentioned, but that's because it's important. And I think it's making uh, a real difference. Um, And then the the fifth would be uh, the impacts of regulatory change. So how far do things like um, consumer duty, um, uh, maybe the government's disability strategy and so on start to play out in terms of access to insurance. So you've got five headings there and wrapped around all of those would be trying to understand and listen to the voice of lived experience because I think you know that's one of the biggest challenges. I think whether you're a policymaker in government or anywhere else, understanding what the genuine issues are um, from such a, a wide range of um, people with different disabilities which will affect them in different ways is really important but it's hard um, and so uh, you know how, how best we start to listen to people to understand the issues that they have in, in terms of the way they buy live with and claim on insurance is important 
Can I focus on underwriting to start off with uh, on that list? Um, I, I think there's a sort of, and Catherine's done an excellent podcast on this last year. There's this dichotomy at the moment with mental health in that we are, uh, you know, one of the positives of COVID, if I may say that, is that the stigma of mental health has thankfully disappeared. And we are now encouraging people to, not only to talk openly about it, but to seek advice, uh, you know, through various mediums. And one of those mediums is obviously via your GP or, or, or via you know, your medical advisors. And yet there seems to be a situation where we're encouraging that and people are therefore talking to medical people about that. And yet when we come to an application form, if the questions are asked in an incorrect way, it appears that some insurers have got a problem in that people have been too honest and gone and sought advice. And and we're getting some decisions back saying, well, actually, we we might have to rate or or exclude mental uh, illnesses because actually... You've sought advice. Do, 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 do you see the, the dichotomy there, potentially? Well, so there's something for me to quickly jump in with that, if that's OK. So I had a really interesting one recently where I was, I was wanting to look for some income protection for somebody. And there was somebody who had taken part in talking therapies, which is something that I kind of feel like, it, I mean, I know you see it on TV shows, I kind of feel like if you were in America, talking therapies would just be something that everyone's kind of doing all the time, you know. But, you know, that's that thing of someone saying, right, you know what, just like I would go to a gym, to look after my health, I'm going to have a talking thing with somebody and like really chatting with them and just making sure that everything's okay. And that in itself was kind of enough to immediately put on like a mental health exclusion for income protection. And I kind of think, well, you know, obviously I know this is probably going way beyond, you know, sorry, the realm of this podcast in a sense, but just following on from that way, I thought that was just quite interesting. Sorry, that, that experience that I've had where it was kind of a case of, well, it just made me sit back and think, well, actually a gym is kind of seen as a reward insurance wise but a talking therapy kind of isn't well anecdotes like that are, are the most important of all because we we like real life situations but anyway which we, we should give peter a chance to yeah. uh, to answer our challenge <laughs> uh, and, and obviously i need to put that immediate caveat in that i'm not an underwriter um and so uh, equally can't speak for all companies i think they're both really good challenges so um mental health would be one of those issues that has come to the fore most obviously in the last 18 months and i think um if if there's any sense that uh, it didn't apply to everyone, that's probably been um, uh, dispelled by what we've collectively experienced. So, so everyone has mental health of some kind or another, and pretty much everyone will have, I think, experienced changes um, and, and issues in some way or another over the last 18 months. I think from an industry perspective, there has been increased focus on that. Uh, you'll have seen the ABI do a lot of work in producing some new mental health um, uh, standards in terms of the way questions are asked. Uh, they produced a new training module to help um, insurers uh, and advisors and indeed anybody else uh, understand some of the issues that uh, need need to be faced there. But you're right, you know, there will still be a question as to whether uh, some of the treatments that might be encouraged and beneficial could somehow uh, impact adversely on your ability to get insurance. So within the groups that I talked about um, originally, the underwriting and the data one, that, that's absolutely uh, the kind of, uh, and within that, for each of these streams, um, uh, building you know, smallish groups of people who can you know, actively debate um, and then bring issues back to insurers via the ABI most obviously but clearly the ABI doesn't represent every single insurer uh, so we will look to uh, bring out these kind of particular challenges um, uh, I think the, the debate is being had now in a way that it never has been before uh, at, at the same level so I think there are opportunities and we are seeing some change there but uh, we will want to recognize that I think along with 
other um, so, so, so mental health will be a, a really important part of the overall underwriting piece. But I think that there is a broader question as to, as to how we ask questions, what data we get, what we use it for, because I think there's a, a kind of wider insurance issue that we face um, going forward, that we are getting more and more data on people. Um, we are measuring ourselves more and more, whether it's through Fitbits or trackers or, or anything else. There is the possibility of crafting individual personalized um, uh, propositions and products for people. Uh, the real danger, I think, with this is if we're not careful, we end up excluding more people rather than um, uh, including more people. So insurance has obviously historically been based on the pooling of risks. So uh, the unfortunate few are supported by the, the many in the pool who don't, who don't uh, suffer the particular um, claim event. But the more data you have about people, the more you can price individually for them, but the more we run the risk of um, uh, excluding some to the extent that you know, ultimately you have a segment of one and the only people who can buy insurance are people who know definitively they don't need it. So I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're getting to a kind of tipping point where and it's accelerating because of the amount of data that we've got. So, so I see one of the roles um, that I can, I hope, do is bring together people to debate this and say, you know, wh where do we end up? And ultimately, it could well be um, a discussion as to how far commercially individual insurers can manage this and how far the state needs to pick up some of the um, areas that just cannot be sorted in, in a commercial sense. So flood re is an example where ultimately, you know, the market wasn't working and we had to have some kind of state intervention to, to stop that. And create the ability for those who otherwise wouldn't be able to get insurance to get insurance. So I'm not saying we're at that point yet, but I think these these kind of broader underwriting and data questions will be ones that um, over the, the coming months, we absolutely need to get out more and, and debate more openly because, you know, without that, there is a danger. We just, um, just carry on getting more and more data and uh, refining more and more propositions for individuals, but not helping the, the mass market, as it were. Yeah, and, and, and the obvious risk there is that if we don't solve this issue or the wrong uh, the wrong uh, stories are told, people will be tempted not to be as honest as they should be on application forms because they might say, well, I've gone to my doctor and had some, some beta blockers prescribed, but I better not say that because I won't be able to get insured, will I? Uh, and none of us want that because that goes back to the bad old days of, 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 of non-disclosure, which which nearly crippled critical illness about 10 years ago, of course. Yeah, no, again, that is exactly right. Um, the... The clear issue is we, we need to get you know as full and frank and open disclosure as possible, and you two know more than most the, the importance of that. But uh, equally, we don't want to be frightening off people, either having appropriate interventions, which will help them because they think that might affect their insurance, or not disclosing them because that might affect their claim. Yeah. I mean, a, a positive that, that you've uh, referred to earlier is, is the very fact that we have a, a government disability strategy. I guess some of us, um, Catherine's very young, but, but you, people like myself and yourself, uh, Peter, have been in the industry slightly longer. Thank I guess you, may have had a slighted, slightly tainted view of sometimes the government's role or, or view, should I say, on insurance in that they were very ambivalent to it. And it was like, you know, you, you guys sort yourselves out. We don't really want to get involved. And, and I think, uh, you know, I, 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 I often quote auto enrollment as a great example of actually the government becoming more involved. But do you sense the very fact that there is a disability ambassador, uh, a, different, uh, a different attitude from government towards insurance? Yeah, from, from a couple of perspectives, I would say. So um, I mean, the disability strategy itself doesn't actually reflect materially on financial services. You know, so, so there's a there's a lot in there about um, transport, work, um, uh, buildings, and so on, which, which might more 
obviously um, be, be seen as areas where you know access you know, very visibly is is difficult for people. Um, I, th I think probably that there is a sense within that that the regulation that we have as insurers and um, and as advisors is already kind of telling us likely to to look at things like vulnerability most obviously um, and so uh, uh, th there is a lot that we are are doing already there. I think more broadly. If you look at the government's approach, some of the green papers they've had on employment recently. So, so um, um, papers, green papers on things like uh, everyone's health and the improvements that we're seeing there. For the first time, these papers are actively referencing um, insurance, most specifically their group insurance. So uh, for a long time, I think insurers have tried to you know, evidence the case for the beneficial impact that insurance can have uh, in getting people back to work. So the rehabilitative um, aspects of it, the uh, engagement that uh, early intervention can have that helps both the, the individual employee, but also the employer and ultimately the insurer, because there's a focus now in, in a way, maybe 10 years, 15 years ago, there wasn't on getting people back to work. The benefits of good health, the, the benefits of work itself um, on your kind of uh, potentially physical, but certainly mental well-being. And that recognition in government circles, I think, is greater than that ever has been. So you wouldn't have seen, I think, the same level of uh, recognition in formal papers that insurance and occupational health and the, the rehabilitative services that insurers provide in these contexts have got a place to play. All right. So, so we're actually, we are opening doors is, 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 is maybe a better way of uh... Of, of describing it, but but obviously those doors uh, sometimes feel a little bit ajar and, and we need to, to sort of push them open with a bit more vigour. Yeah, I mean, I do think the government in its broader sense will um, believe there is a role for insurers to play in quite a, a few sectors of society, you know, really important. You know, we absolutely provide um, a kind of critical uh, service to, uh, to, to to customers, to to employers, and to society at large by managing the risks that are just otherwise difficult to to deal with. If you looked at things like um, social care, so we've had a lot um, announced recently uh, on changes being made to the way long-term care is is managed. There remain, you know, plenty of questions uh, in in terms of what's happened. I don't think it's fair to say that social care has been fixed in any in any sense at the moment, I think if we're looking for positives here, the fact that something's been done at all is really good, you know, because I've been yeah. involved in looking at this for, for more than 10 years and others longer, uh, where, where the idea is that insurers would kind of step up and um, provide ancillary products alongside um, existing state provision for, for care. That's almost impossible to do unless um, you've got uh, people who've got a really clear idea as to what the state will provide, what they won't provide, what I as a, an individual um, uh, citizen am responsible for in terms of my own long-term care. Uh, so, so if I think I understand the state's offer, then I'm more likely perhaps to top it up with, with something else. But again, there are you know ongoing discussions with ministers, um, uh, civil service officials, and, and more to say wh where is the opportunity to provide that degree of partnership? Um, you know, and it's I think we're a little way away from being able to say definitively because of the changes we're seeing, there will be X number of new products coming out over the next couple of years. But there's no doubt the more people understand that actually they're going to have to pay for some of this themselves, the more likely it is um, that they'll t take some kind of action. Whereas to date, I would say the vast majority of people. Don't think about going into care until they have to. Um, yeah. And you know, if you uh, ask someone to think about it in their forties or fifties, you know, it's pretty unlikely they will. So, so that's not to say 
we can't do more to encourage that. I mean, I think, you know, Roy, you obviously get involved heavily in, um, you know, pensions for, for uh, companies and, and more. I don't think anyone is going to buy a new product that uh, encourages you to save for long-term care because they just don't want to think about it. I think it may be possible to provide, for example, some additional incentives alongside existing vehicles like pensions where you could say, when you get to retirement, if it turns out you need care, you can draw down some of that money from that and pay it tax-free, let's say, to a care provider of some kind. So, you know, there, there are absolutely opportunities to build on what's there already. But, you know, hard to imagine most people want to hypothecate their own savings for, for long-term care. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think what scared lots of us in the on the wealth side of this is when the long-term care subject, quite rightly, uh, uh, you know, was put on a platform and, and everyone was talking about it. And, and and several MPs kept referring to an insurance product. And many of us are sort of scratching our head going, what insurance product? Because it doesn't exist. Um, and, you know, if MPs don't realise that, that that there's no solution there, God help the rest of us. But uh, yeah. um, I think you need to be clear what problem would insurance be solving there. Um, yeah. you know, so, so, so I think there are different problems at different times in people's lives so it could be um, and there are products out there now that, that do help in this kind of environment aren't there so there are immediate needs annuities so if i do need to go into care if i want to kind of have a degree of certainty over um being able to meet those fees i can buy you know a, a guaranteed annuity today but it presupposes i've got some assets to, to be able to buy that annuity yeah. with. <laughs> that, that there is equity release so you know increasingly that's likely to be quite a major part i think of the the solution you know so people can buy it today often that equity release tends to stop when someone goes into care so it's so there may be some more product development that's required there but you know there are for now at least quite a lot of people who have housing equity that could be used to help with that that care and there are some products you know which have kind of care rider benefits from an insurance perspective um what other products might you imagine uh, what are the problems you might solve uh, i mean i guess if anything we will have had a greater sense going forward that we don't want to go into care homes. I mean, that's, you know, that's huge generalization, but you kind of look over the last 18 months and care homes have been seen as a kind of petri dish for infection. And, uh, you know, if you didn't want to go in one before, I suspect that will have been reinforced by what we've seen, particularly in the early impacts of, you know, disease going through care homes. But uh, products that could help someone stay safely in their home for longer. Um, and that could be you know, with some kind of technological um, uh, safeguarding through sensors and so on. Uh, you, you could imagine a kind of package of products that might help with the financing of that, which might help with some kind of you know, aimed perhaps at the children of, of parents who are going into care. You know, so, so how are they going to look after them uh, in care? How can they keep them safely in their home for longer? Those are the sorts of challenges I think insurers have to look at. Uh, that's not to say there are easy solutions, but um, again, I would believe there will be an expectation of a degree of partnership where, wherever possible there. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I, would, I would say that I think it's very important that the insurance industry and the wealth management industry come together here because, uh, and I think you've exemplified it very well, the solution uh, transcends both those industries for me because there's got to be a savings culture as part of that solution. Um, and that's something that we need to do. But uh, um, let's move on. There's so many subjects to talk to you about. Obviously, uh, need to talk to you about your ABI work. Um, now, um, uh, the ABI... Uh, I think if we uh, if we were being honest, was some some advisors slightly cynical about the ABI over the years? I think I think I'm trying to be as polite as possible. Um, but uh, listen, what, what, one of the great things about you, Peter, is is that you are a bridge builder, uh, and with 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 very few rivals. Are, are you conscious that there's sometimes a, a bit of a silo between the ABI and the advisory community? Yeah, I've certainly heard that. 
And I understand where it comes from. I don't think there should be. Uh, I think one of the things I would observe over the last 18 months, again, has, has been in a world where collaboration has perhaps um, been less apparent as individual countries have decided we're going to hoard the vaccines to ourselves, um, you know, and it's America first or whatever it might be. I think actually within our own industry, we have seen more collaboration than I've ever seen before. Um, and that's uh, within and across uh, advisors, um, insurers, reassurers and more. I think the ABI absolutely has a, a part to play here. Again, it doesn't represent uh, every single um, company. Uh, it can't mandate lots and lots of stuff to, to people who aren't members of it. Um, but I think it does some really good things. You know, and at one level, the ABI is only as good as its members. So uh, it's incumbent, I think, on insurers to play a really active part in doing that. And that means reaching out more overtly to other stakeholders, we should be doing that. I think, again, if I look back over the last um, 18 months or so, one of the things we do, um, or I do personally, simply because I chair one of the committees there, is meet um, with um, uh, Alan, the, uh, Alan, you'll know well, Catherine, um, the, the I PDG, do, do. <laughs> the PDG um, ch chairman. Is there, a is there a conflict on this podcast? <laughs> uh. yeah, so, but, but I think that, that there, again, the PDG won't represent every single um, uh, advisor Absolutely. or dis distribution Absolutely. firm out yeah. there. But, but I think that's just an example of a kind of yeah. more engagement than we'll have had historically, um, yeah. uh, collectively just sharing what some of these issues are. So yeah, if, if I can do one thing, um, I, I would hope it's, it's to continue that bridge building across different uh, different communities within our, our sector. Yeah, and, and Peter, you know, I was playing a little bit devil's advocate, you know me well, uh, um, but you know, I, I, I wanted to give our listeners a chance to listen to, to your answer, which I, I'd anticipate. And, and I think uh, that the advisor community equally would say that the collaboration from our point of view is, 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 is equally been welcome as well. Because I think, let's face it, all of us think that the, 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 end, the end product, the end, uh, the end result is looking after consumers and, and you have exactly the same uh, you know, uh, uh, um, desires for us to cover more people in the UK. And that's, let's face it, what we're doing in protection. So I think if we've got the same end result, we should be maybe coming at slightly different angles, but a collaborative approach is, is the way of doing it. And which brings me very nicely on to uh, the, the, the probably the most uh, spoken about topics in, 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 in the last month or so, electronic GPRs. Uh, now, I know you guys at the ABI are doing uh, some, some work on this, but how, how do you see the, the, the situation at the moment? Um, I think access to medical information is the biggest issue we have. Um, for, for purely from a business perspective, um, uh, it's the grit in the in the machine. Uh, it's hard for customers. It's hard for advisors. It's hard for insurers, and of course, it's exacerbated by the current environment that we're in. So, you know, there's no doubt that uh, medical professionals surgery is under huge pressure. We we had notifications going out the end of last. Um, last year saying they expected everyone just to focus on boosters and you know almost stop anything else that it, that isn't leading directly to, to greater take up there so you can understand entirely why um uh there is pressure and um forms from insurance companies for whatever reason might not be returned as quickly as possible but it's causing us pain everywhere i mean i got involved in a radio uh, interview earlier this week from you know basically and it wasn't one of our cases and it wouldn't be appropriate to talk about you know whose case it was but basically the, the customer had waited six months for a claim to be paid because they couldn't get hold of the medical information so it, it's hurting i think at, at every area it's hurting at the underwriting level where you know we can wait it's hurting 
um, at claim stage where we might still need information. I think short term, there has been some, some good work uh, in terms of electronic GPRs, which absolutely makes sense for um, our perspective because we get it back quicker um, from the uh, customer's perspective. Hopefully they get a, a decision more quickly and really from, from um, doctors as well, because you know it ought to help them from a data protection perspective. Um, that there will still be some concerns that they will have almost however they are transmitting highly personal sensitive information. Uh, what we have seen, I would say, as an industry, I, mean, I think these are our Zurich figures, but I think they're echoed by a number of people who, who do use these, is that pre-pandemic, we probably had take up from doctors about 25%. It's nearer 40 plus percent now. So that's you know a big swing in the right direction, which we have to sustain and, and build on to, to get more people to use them. Because there is no doubt they come back quicker. Um, uh, you know, we, we, We've got evidence that, that shows that that's the case. I think in a way... We should continue to focus on that because any enhancements and progress we can make here will be um, the, the right uh, thing to do. Going forward, and this will be you know, one of the ABI's own priorities, it's working with the NHS because the NHS, of course, themselves looking at digitization, digi digitizing, if I could say that, um, patient records. And that has to be the, the longer term um, ideal where we're not dependent on going to uh, people who have got other priorities, like medical professionals, to get to get information um, from them, if we can get to a stage where customers themselves can, with informed consent, give us access to their records, you know, you could foresee we, we could just um, revolutionise the difficulties that we have today. I think you know that's certainly on the NHS agenda. Um, you know, give, but but there are huge associated data protection concerns with what is very sensitive information. So I think the answer is we'll continue to try and grow that 40% to 50%, 60% and more. Um, clearly, if we can avoid asking for GPR in the first place, that's even better because it doesn't get in the way. Um, but where we will require medical information longer term, I think the best answer is to be able to get that informed or informed and, and uh, consent to access directly from the patient and just cut out the middleman. It would be so much better. I was going to say, obviously, as someone who helps people that do often need GP reports, I mean, in terms of like the IGPRs, they are they are so much better. Um, you know, not having to decipher um, a, a GP's handwriting is obviously always a very good thing. Uh, same with anybody. You know, obviously, all of us, our handwriting isn't necessarily the best when we're rushing something. And, and undoubtedly, there are obviously people, you know, GPs, in a sense, shouldn't be completing these kinds of reports. You know, they should be doing what they're good. As with anything in any organisation, you should do what you're good at, in a sense, which is they're there to help people. But obviously, in terms of what we need, they do need to do this. So, so these reports are so important. And I think, you know, you were saying about the data protection side of things. Uh, we're involved in a, in a case at the moment where there's been a huge, huge data breach, uh, not Obviously, luckily, touch wood, it's not from ourselves. Um, it's a, been a huge data breach from the GP surgery and that there's somebody that we've been supporting um, with a medical condition. Um, as with anything, it's, you know, anybody's data is very important and very sensitive for this person. It's a very, very sensitive situation that they are involved with. And unfortunately, the GP surgery has um, posted out the GP report to someone random within the community. Wow. rather than yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's a very very big breach um and that could have been solved so easily by them having this software installed that would be a click of a button 
that would have just done this straight away. Obviously, it's going to streamline things so much. And I think, you know, ultimately as well, you know, I am very familiar with looking at GP reports, not every advisor is. So anything we can do to make it easy for an advisor to try and, I mean, not, not every advisor in the world is going to want to see GP reports. And, you know, maybe not every advisor in the world should see them. But if you have someone who is going through GP reports, the amount of times that, you know, I've said this plenty of times before, the amount of times you're having to get these corrected because there's incorrect information in them. Or you have a very, you've got two things. You're either, that They're either going to come back and say what you want them to say, which is wonderful. They're going to come back and something's incorrect on them and you have to get it corrected. Or you have that really, really difficult um, position as an advisor where something comes up in the medical report and it's accurate and that person is not aware in full about their health. And you're then in a very awkward situation where you're trying to speak to somebody and explain what's happened. And then they're having kind of like a bit of a self-realization thing that's going on that actually in that situation where we are talking about, it probably be that there's, the health is is not as good as they thought it was. Yeah, and uh, it's awful. All, no, all really good points. And I think one of the challenges to that kind of patient consent piece will, will be, uh, you know, how, how far the medical profession are comfortable that yeah. there is full access to that because, you know, legitimately there may be reasons why they haven't um, uh, explained maybe everything there because they think it's it's the right thing um, to, to be doing for that patient. And of course, unfettered access um, to everything that's there in the wrong hands, you know, whether it's the patients or indeed ours or anybody else, it's going to be dangerous. So, yes. you know, it's, it's not a simple thing. It won't be this year. I don't know when it will be. I do know that, you know, it's been actively um, considered right now. So you, know, you can see the benefits that will come from it while being aware of some of the challenges in getting there. Peter, I'd like to take you off to a different subject for me, uh, just conscious of time here. Um, the wealth management world is totally dominated by uh, ESG at the moment um, and uh, the, the old ethical investment and, and, uh, and, and quite rightly, many wealth managers are moving towards that. Um, I'm going to and, jump and in, Roy. Can you explain? Sorry, Roy, can you explain your acronym for people who are right. from the investment world? Please? Sorry, environmental, social and governance. And basically what that means is that the way you invest your monies uh, should be uh, looked at closer. And many people, particularly uh, tends to be younger people, uh, are very worried about where people are investing um, and, you know, are inv investing in, in more ethical areas, uh, areas that have impact. Um, and, it, and it's just a, a, a very sort of political with a small p movement towards that in the in the uh, in a wealth management world. Um, just interested to, to hear, and I, I know Zurich have, have been doing some work on this. Where do you think the protection world lies with sustainability issues? Yeah, great question. I think it, I mean, it goes back to some of the discussion we had earlier on. So if, if I look at some of the ABI priorities, um, this year, trust is you know, right up there, partly because it's been hurt, I would say, over the last 18 months you know, with things like business interruption claims and so on. And I don't know that customers always necessarily draw much of a distinction between different branches of, of insurance. But the, uh, to your earlier point, the need to ensure that we, so far as we can possibly do so, you know, we, we build and earn trust in the industry is, is really important. And I think um, if you look at how, how do you do that, sustainability, I think, is a really important part of it. So, so I think there are different levels, layers to trust and how, as an industry, we can do it. I think some fantastic work being done at individual advisor levels, you know, and you're both really good um, role models here. And there are others out there who are using social media and more to build trust with their own consumers. And I think, you know, every time I see any research, customers actually say, I trust my own advisor. You know, it's all the others. I, I, I don't <laughs> so, so there's some really good advisory firms out there doing fantastic work with individual companies. 
I think at insurance level, you know, we, we come up against the myth of, you know, we don't pay claims and, you know, we, Zurich and others, we do as much as we can to rebut that through both some figures, which, you know, you could argue, do they help or not? I, I think they can be used appropriately, but also the stories to say, you know, look what a difference we've made to people's lives. I think one of the dangers with focusing a lot on claims is largely lots of consumers aren't necessarily interested in it until it directly affects them. So, so there is a danger we are talking to ourselves when we publish some of this stuff. I think the issues that really affect consumers, and you start to see it in every bit of research now, is things like the environment and sustainability. And whether you're a potential employee or a potential customer, you know, there's any amount of research now that says you will have your you will make decisions based on your perception of those companies and their sustainability um, uh, goals. There's some research out just today. Um, Bupa uh, have produced it. You know, um, it's it's uh, available, I think, on the cover website. Some really interesting observations there, just in terms of the impact that um, you know, particularly but not exclusively, younger customers will have when when they look at um, someone's credentials. So it will determine whether or not they place business or want to work for someone whose values they might see accord with their own. So I think how we kind of look at the sustainability issue um, and uh, get that message across that actually insurers who historically might have been seen as the bad guys, you know, and so, so when people think of sustainability, they probably have an image of someone dripping green paint over Lloyd of London, you know, in protest. The reality, which we have to get across, you know, at this high level. So if you've got different levels of you know, trust building from individual companies as an industry, the work we can do on sustainability is massive. So um, at an industry level, there is a requirement for something like 2.7 trillion of investment between now and 2050 to get to, to net zero. The insurance industry alone, with the funds that we manage through premiums that we hold on behalf of customers, could, with some um, changes to uh, some of the solvency requirements and the way we invest capital, account for a third of that. So, so there's a huge, huge opportunity to be the good guys here, to invest um, in sustainable futures and help that transition between now and then. At individual company levels, you know, some of the things that we do now, we, we've done our own research that shows that customers are really happy to have, you know, as long as it's explained to them, things like uh, recycled parts. They don't have to have everything new now. Um, I saw at an ABI conference, a lady called Penny James, who's CEO of Direct Line, talk about the fact that she spends 25% of her time on sustainability. Uh, and within that, you know, they look at all their processes, uh, things like their supply chains, who does what for them. They have people looking at, um, for example, they found the biggest contributor to net emissions was the way that repair cars um, had their paint dried when you were repainting. So, so you know, they, they just have been spending a lot of time looking at that process. They are literally paying people to watch paint dry uh, to get a better process um, for, for that. So customers and employees will see a company's credentials, as it were, in terms of sustainability, increasingly is important. And I think that's that's important for us as insurers. Actually, I think it's important for advisory firms as well, you know, because uh, customers going to them, we did a, a kind of small survey amongst um, you know some advisory firms for a meeting that we um, hosted a li little while back, and actually only about fifteen percent of the the firms, and these were you know some some big firms, had any reference whatsoever to sustainability. And that's not to say each individual firm is going to be changing the world, but each individual firm can have policies on things like waste management, on purchasing. So, so for example, at Zurich, we outsource a lot of our purchasing to a company called Wild Hearts, which is just, so, so you can easily get to you know, ethical sourcing through companies who just focus directly on this, not by having to scour um, the, uh, the internet yourself for, for, for every opportunity, but because there are, there are companies there who will help you do this. So 
all of us, whether you know individually um, or as a firm or as an industry, can make a difference. And I think uh, in terms of reputation, one of the biggest opportunities for us to be the good guys going forward is to be seen to be acting in a way that um, is positive for something that people care passionately about and there's no doubt you know while it might be seen as predominantly young today in terms of the activists that that's something that i think goes across the generations you know so so what can you do individual people within your firms you know, that they will be passionate about this you know that there is material out there there are sources out there find the advocates in your own firms um to, to do this you know get an action list of, of what you're going to do how are you going to promote it to your own customers not in an overtly commercial way but just to give reassurance that these are things that matter because it matters to customers fabulous peter we're running out of time we couldn't let you go uh without you it sounds like a two ronnie sketch that doesn't it we couldn't let you go without without talking uh to uh i'll say a wise young scribe about his 40 years in this wonderful industry and and i guess i guess uh, changes that you've seen for the good maybe some for the bad i'm hoping they're mostly for the good but uh, uh let's take let's take you back to the peter hamilton of of, of 1970 whenever it was and uh pay to now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i guess 40 years on it is 40 40 years on plus 1982 you know, sorry I apologize. yeah um yeah. It's a, so it's a long time in the industry and the fact that i'm still doing it and loving it and have no intention to retire unless someone kind of forcibly tells me I've got to do that, you know, for, for the foreseeable future, I think is testament to what we do collectively. So there have been changes, but, you know, for all the industries I could have worked in, I think that's one of those that came in by accident, as, as we all kind of find. And I think one of the challenges is how do we make it more overtly a place that people want to work? So, so I have seen changes in terms of, you know, distribution. I think we've got specialist firms and protection, which is fantastic because when I started out, there were the number of advisors talking about protection was measured in the hundreds of thousands. You know, it's measured what now in terms of, you know, the actual people who license is probably 15,000 or so, the number of people talking regularly is 5,000. So the fact that we are still selling the volumes we do, the amount of protection we do is testament to firms like your own who specialize and um, are making up for the fact that the direct sales forces, the home service sales forces, the bank sales forces have all disappeared. So, so that's one of the biggest seismic changes, you know, the fact that we've got more specialism, fewer advisors, but, but greater focus. Um, but I do think we need to do more to make it an industry that everyone wants to, to join, and it can be done. Um, I'm gonna, you know, at the risk of promoting um, Zurich, uh, permit me the, you know, this last plug. But I yeah. mean, this week, this 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 last week, Glassdoor, which is a kind of big um, uh, employer sur survey, um, talked about that they they have some two million firms that they have on their, their books and they, they kind of rate them depending on you know is it a good place to work or not so this 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 week um zurich came in at number 16 out of the top 50 so you know two two places ahead of google um so, so the, and i think actually the, the only insurer in here but some of those companies are new companies um you know who've only been going three or four or five years um others are you know big huge companies but insurance can be a good place to work um and i think if you focus on the kind of societal good that we do and you make um that that kind of purpose um really apparent to the people who work with you and you listen to them and you give them choice you can have an employer the size of um you know someone like a zurich that is seen as just a great place to work so instead of having the the tired i fell into insurance that i'm guilty of um you know we want to get to a stage where people see it's a great place to work and they can see that we make a difference to society and they want to be part of it. 
I think that's quite a nice uh, thing going on from there as well in terms of, um, you know, the work that we do in terms of access to insurance. It's when we're doing that and we're focusing upon trying to really see people and not see conditions and see what people can do rather than focus on what people can't do. it, It doesn't just isolate it to or this is a, an underwriting decision, or this is what a policy is available. It, it inherently influences everything that we are doing. And, it, and also in terms of recruitment in the industry and what we want to do. And I know that you are involved with GAIN, um, which is new, and that's obviously working to do with them, um, making insurance world far more open in terms of neurodiversity uh, as well, which is in- incredibly important. Yeah, and we may not have much time, but yeah, and yeah. but what I would just like to touch on that briefly because I think one of those five strands I outlined at the top of the meeting was how to make um, insurance a better and more accessible place. And I think Gain is a good example of you know an insurance network that you know within the last few weeks has published a you know fantastic guide on uh, recruitment. You know, so how do you get the benefits of divergent thinking into an organization where our historic processes may just not have been particularly appropriate for someone who just thinks in a different way. But actually insurance of all the industries where you're looking for patterns and so on is absolutely the right kind of industry for someone who, who might be uh, autistic who thinks in a different way um, but can bring very real and different benefits. But you know, historically our processes just haven't made it easy either for that person to get through the door in the first place or necessarily to stay there. Um, and I think you know our industry does so much good in, in different ways. Uh, maybe fin- finish on just a brief story this week and it's fresh in my mind because it's so um, uh, uh, str- strange in a way. I am um, I'm joining on a voluntary basis the Insurance uh, United Against Dementia board next next week. So, so that's you know another important area where um, historically I would say that group has been driven by people in the general insurance business. So they're looking for some wider representation from the, from the life business. So in fact, myself and Rose Louis, um, who, who you'll know, are both joining that next week. We'll, we'll go for our first um, meeting. And just two incidents this week, because you know, one of the things I'm acutely aware of is I don't know enough. So every day is a learning day, uh, as it were. So two things that almost purely by coincidence have made me kind of focus on the importance of it. Um, one is, you know, I was listening to the radio and there was a book um, that's just come out by um, a lady who's uh, got dementia herself, had it 10 years ago. And people say, well, how can you write a book? You know, And it's just explaining um, and undoing some of the myths that we might have in terms of how dementia um, can affect people in different ways. So um, uh, a really powerful um, uh, insight into what it means to have dementia and how it, how it can affect you. And the other was just this um, strange personal experience. I think it was Tuesday night, um, our doorbell went at, at 1.30 um, at, at night. And it was very insistent. I suddenly found myself waking up out of this um, uh, deep sleep, went down to the, the door um, and there, was a little old lady, you know, she was 82 or so. Um, uh, and it took a while to work out what, what she was there, but she was clearly very confused, you know, and as it you know, fairly rapidly transpired, she's got dementia. Um, so, you know, she came in, sat her down and tried to piece together what had happened to her, why she was on our doorstep of any other doorstep um, at 1.30, got through to police, who got through to um, uh, uh, the, the relatives who had notified her as missing in the afternoon. And basically, she 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 lived in North London, Wood Green. Uh, I live in South London, um, and she had found herself uh, down at our house and bizarrely just knocked on our door. Um, so had an hour and a half just um, 
talking to her, you know, so far as you kind of looking to piece together her journey today, which is very difficult, her life. Um, but as, as a lesson on the impact, it was just very, very um, immediate. And so eventually, an hour and a half later, the, you know, relieved um, uh, um, children came to pick her up um, because they had no idea. And I, I guess no one will ever know quite how she ended up from North London to South London. Um, the journey wow. she took, whether it was bu buses, whether it was trains. But the kind of coincidence for me, you know, just because I've got this meeting next week, um, it's almost as if someone up there was looking down and saying, you know, we need to expose him to, to what's happening in the real world here. So there was my hour and a half, um, uh, you know, uh, induction session, as it were, as to how dementia can affect people. I was going to say, that she got you. Insurance personality extraordinaire and guardian angel. Yeah, a guardian. A, 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 another title for you. Absolutely, <laughs> very lucky that she was on your doorstep and uh, and that you were obviously so kind and, and able to do exactly in a sense what you need to do to keep her calm because obviously it can be very very scary for somebody in that situation. Yeah, but... I mean, interesting. You know, she wasn't scared at all. I, just, just very very confused, and you know, would yeah. have had no idea how she how she reached our door as opposed to any others because it's not like when next to a bus stop or a train station. You know, she's just obviously wandered around, but was unable to articulate exactly how she ended right. up there but no interesting oh, bless her. I think a good way to sort of like end uh, the podcast nicely um, would just be to sort of like say really sorry some really clear wishes or a specific wish that you hope um, for this next year Peter uh, so if we can make progress on the access to digital records that we talked about, that would be really important to me. Um, if we can make any progress on making insurance uh, a place that people want to work as opposed to fall into, uh, that, that, that would, would be good. Build on the collaboration we've seen um, uh, and uh, just have a better 2022. And I guess finally, um, for Jesse Lingard to sign for West Ham. <laughs> Almost. Almost the entire way through without football. And I was going to say, I wouldn't have been any the wiser if you hadn't finished off with West Ham. That's sort of like the best of my knowledge. I was thinking, who's Jesse? And then it just dawned on me. I was like, oh, okay, football. Yes. I'm sure. I think, you've got, get... I think you've got more chance of Jesse James signing for West Ham. <laughs> Take him. Need a striker. <laughs> I am lost. I've followed everything so far, but you've lost me on the football. But <laughs> thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And thank you so much for joining us, Peter. It's been really uh, good to have you inside. No, really enjoyed the opportunity. Thank you. Fantastic. So I have a little bit of something interesting and fun to talk to you and tell you all about, obviously, um, is that we are having a mental health and insurance awareness week and it's starting on the 31st of January. And so every day, Monday to Thursday, we are <clears throat> sorry, my voice is going a little bit now. Um, so every day, Monday to Thursday, there is going to be a podcast coming out. It's probably going to be about 30 minutes ish, so a little bit shorter than our usual ones. I've been very strict to myself not to natter too much during them. But this is all to do with the work that I've been doing with the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries in their mental health working groups. So there's been this big, um, I put together this big kind of like mental health mind map in terms of insurance and where mental health will kind of come in, where it needs to be considered. And each day we're going to be taking a different area to focus on that. So we've got some fantastic guests, some, some experts from within our industry and also outside of our industry too. And then on the Friday, there is going to be a live webinar as well, where people can register and come and quiz people from different areas of the industry and just ask those questions that you've been wanting to know all the time. And I'm really hopeful that we'll get some, some nice sort of like um, attendance from obviously people within the industry, but also hopefully some mental health charities as well that I know have um, have spotted what we are up to. Um, 
it's going to start off, as I say, start, starting off kind of like the triggers for what makes us want insurance, going through to how we get insurance, the insurances that are available and why certain decisions are made, and then through to the claim side of things and the support services that people can access even if they aren't making a claim. As always, if you would like a reminder of the next episodes, just drop us a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk. And again, as every episode um, is, um, structured CPD through to our, well, thanks to our sponsors, the Octa members, please do visit either Octa members to, to log your CPD or go on the website and you will get that through to you too. So again, thank you very much. and Lovely to see you both again after the New Year's. Good to see you both. Thanks again. Thanks guys, see you soon.